Let's open up our Bibles to Acts chapter 4, if you have them with you, Acts chapter 4. Uh, and as we do that, I want to just catch us up on, uh, on where we've been over the, the, our time together starting last week. Um, if you weren't with us, we jumped into this three-part series called Prayer Life. Prayer Life. And the entire goal of this series is really, really simple. Um, it all boils down to one question. It comes from this pivotal moment back in Luke's gospel as the followers of Jesus made this really simple request of him. They said, Lord, would you teach us to pray? Lord, would you teach us to pray? A few weeks ago, as I shared last Sunday, that verse just got stuck in my head, and I began to wonder, why is it that I've never asked that question of God before? You ever asked the Lord that? It's such a simple request, and yet those five words have the power to change our entire relationship with him. We talked last week about uh, how prayer life is this learned behavior that, that we pick it up kind of like a two-year-old picks up language where, where over time we just sort of emulate the, the patterns and the words that we've grown up with. But we also found last week that prayer is so much more though than grace at the dinner table or a, a pithy poem before bed. God's word teaches us to pray without ceasing. And so to get an idea of what that might look like, we've been camping out in the book of Acts to see how this question played out in the early church. And, and last Sunday, right off the bat, we opened up to this scene that's almost foreign to us. These same men and women who had made this request of Jesus in Luke's gospel are now devoting their entire lives to prayer just as he had taught them. We're gonna dive even deeper today because the prayer life of these disciples is about to be tested in every way possible. So before we open up God's word, let me just set that up. Peter and John had brushed up against this fire of opposition for sharing their faith. And they were thrown in jail for talking about the resurrection specifically. And then they were dragged before the courts to give an account of their actions. And so Peter stands up and with this divine authority, this boldness, he preaches Christ to the crowd. And by God's grace, they're actually told to go on their way. But as they leave the doors to the courts, they're given this ominous warning that to continue sharing the gospel as they have done will be to seal their own fate. So Peter and John run back to their home and in the midst of this crisis, we find this picture of God's people falling on their knees yet again. And so in the next 25 or so minutes, I want us to look at three lessons from this moment this morning. First, we're gonna revisit this idea of praying together as we touched on last week. Then I want to introduce this concept that I've come up with called praying backwards. It's actually what God's word came up with. And then finally, I want us to think about what it means to pray boldly in Jesus' name. So let's look at this. If you have your Bibles, let's look at this in Acts 4. We're going to read verses 23 to 31, and we'll also have those words up on the screen. Acts 4, 23 to 31. Let's listen to God's word together. So when Peter and John were released... They went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why do the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, 
along with the Gentiles and all the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. This is my favorite part. And when they had prayed, the place in which they had gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. So earlier this week, I went out to uh, have lunch at the Rise and Shine Cafe over in Belgrade. I mean, this really strange thing happened to me. We, we ordered lunch, and, and I stuck my card in the reader, and before the cashier rung us up, she called me by name. She said, Ryan, would you like a receipt today? And for some reason, my head started to spin. I'm thinking, how does she know my name? Have I met this lady before? Maybe she goes to Spring Hill. I don't recognize her. She knows me. I don't know. I'm feeling horrible. And after about 30 minutes of this internal dialogue, I realized I hadn't gotten to her question so I snapped back to reality. I said, yes, sure, I'll take your receipt. And she must have caught my wandering because then she started laughing. She said, you know, I always wonder if it creeps people out when I say their name. I said, how do you know my name? She said, well, when you swipe your credit card on the reader, it tells me who you are on the computer. I'm thinking, duh, I knew that. But as we sat down for lunch, I got to thinking about how seldom we hear our names today. You ever thought about that? Well, we live in a day and age, I think, that for the most part, we're really more of a number than we are a name. Let me just lay this case out for a minute. Um, you know I love Starbucks by now. Let's just take Starbucks for an example. Starbucks has its roots in this little coffee shop, 1971, right in the heart of Pike's Place Market in downtown Seattle. And the shop took pride in two things. They took pride in local friendships and top-notch coffee. That was their MO. And yet just a half century later, there are over 30,000 Starbucks and 300,000 employees worldwide. They all look the same. We know this. That they all carry the same feeling of comfort and home. No matter where you go, you can get your favorite drink. And yet no matter how hard Starbucks tries, when push comes to shove, they, they may still have the top-notch coffee, but they have no idea who you are. We saw the same thing happen in our local grocery stores over the same time frame. Um, your neighborhood mom and pop shop is now this gigantic company called Walmart. Not only will you never be known in a Walmart, but most of us, we can shop in Walmart without any human interaction at all. We now use these self-checkout stations where the only person that you come into contact with is you, staring back in that security camera to make sure you're honest. And I say all that to say this. I feel like society now sees individuals more as consumers than we do citizens. We're seen more as customers than we are as friends. Anyone see the, uh, the latest January AARP magazine cover? Don't ask me how I know this. But on the cover page, there's these flashing, bold black letters. It says, the loneliness epidemic. We talked a few months ago about how this was the case among the millennials, and now it's among our aging population as well. If you open up the magazine, it says on the inside pages that over 40% of our aging population is now suffering in this new phenomenon called social isolation and depression. 
I think if we were to ask God this morning to teach us to pray, somewhere in the midst of that lesson, he'd remind us of the importance of community. Like in a world that's now isolated and fragmented, it seems to me that this would be the highlight of his teaching. That's not to say that praying alone should be set aside or that it doesn't have its place or that there's not many examples in the scriptures, but it is to say that praying together has become a lost art. We touched on this last week, but I want to peel back a few more layers because I think this lesson is now a trend and a pattern in Acts. Look at how this is played out in our passage up on your screens. When Peter and John were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when the church heard it, they lifted up their voices together to God. This is the the ethos that now exists among the people that prayer is something that we do with one another and community. You bring your prayer requests, we'll lift it up to the Father. Which really brings us to this first point, which is the early church prayed together. They prayed together. Back in Luke's gospel, these same disciples had asked Jesus how to pray, right? And his response to them was the Lord's prayer. He said, this is how you should pray. He laid it out for them. You ever notice the plural nature of that prayer? He said, pray like this. Our Father who art in heaven, give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us of our sins. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. I think there's something to be said about a corporate prayer. It's the format of Jesus' teaching, and yet this doesn't come nearly as organically as it once did. I would say that in many respects, this consumer's mentality actually has now crossed into the threshold of the church, where instead of giving, uh, living out our, our citizenship in, in the kingdom in the midst of a community, there's really this headwind of passive consumerism that swept the pew. In fact, one of the fastest growing trends is an example of that in the church is this new concept called home church. Anybody heard of that? Home church. And it's not the kind of church that we find in the book of Acts. This is something entirely new. Um, This idea is to find your favorite church online and to live stream over coffee and, and have breakfast as a family. There's no racing the kids out the door. It's awesome. You don't have to put your pants on if you want to. And at first glance, this is an incredible thing, right? Like in many respects, technology has now allowed us to reach this crowd that we would have never gotten before. In fact, we live stream at String Hill, um, hello if you're watching, so that those who wouldn't otherwise be able to join us can hop on. You might be sick. We had a family that was sick last week and got on. You might be out of town on business. You might be unable to come on on in because of of a, a disability But here's the challenge. I mean, if you're with us on Facebook, I want you to hear my heart on this. If you do home church, you're missing out. You're missing out on church, church. I think the hallmark of community in Christ is us doing life together and being known so that others might come to know the one who we follow. And here's the antidote to that. When they heard this, they lifted up their voices together to God. There's this rhythm of prayer and the roots of the early church that is grounded right in the midst of community. It's palpable all over the pages of Acts. And yet even at Spring Hill, you can come in a little late and you can leave a little early and never really be known here. How can we pray together if we don't know each other? 
This coming Sunday, one week from the day, we're going to do this little experiment on this, and I'll give you a preview for, you know, the faithful being here on a three-day weekend. You get the preview of next Sunday, and it's this. We're going to hand out a couple of hundred wristbands that we're going to make available to you. And on the bands are these words, pray with me. Pray with me. But here's the experiment. We want that band to be a commitment of two things, community and prayer. Community and prayer. Let me just paint you a picture of this because it might put you in places beyond your comfort. Um, It might mean if you put this wristband on that you might be going from coffee and cookies after church to having someone ask you to pray for them. It might mean praying for the gas station cashier as you hand them the dollar bill and they see this on your wrist or the guy hanging out with you on the chairlift. It might mean praying for your boss or for your teacher. But the question is, what would it look like to rebuild community together? I want to invite you over this week to just pray about what it would look like to put that wristband on. Just consider all the ways that God's word commands us to do this in community. Galatians 6.2 says this, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Matthew 18, 20 says, where two or more are gathered in my name, there I am among them. James 5, 15 teaches us to confess our sins and to pray to one another. We've also got something else cooking in the works as well. Um, in just a few weeks, we're gonna be rolling out new life groups as a church. Um, we overwhelmingly heard that in all of our coffee gatherings last year from the church, and there's an entire team that's been praying for this for some time now, and you're going to hear more about that in just a few weeks, but the idea with that is this. Um, if we're doing church right, then it's a lot less about the preacher on Sunday morning, and it's a lot more about the community that gathers here. If we're doing church well, then your prayer life is our prayer life. The burdens that you carry are the burdens that we carry. The worship that you bring is the worship that we bring. The first lesson that we're going to learn this morning is that praying together has the power to move us together, which leads me to the second point. It's a little bit odd, but go with me, and it's that they prayed backwards. The early church prayed backwards. The Olympic sport of rowing began in the, back in the year of 1900 in the, the Paris game. I think we have a, a picture here for you. And many of us have probably watched this competition roll out many times. But if you're like me, you probably never appreciated just how technical this sport really is. Anyone heard of a coxswain before? The coxswain is the person that sits on the stern of the boat facing all the rowers. They're the captain of the ship. And the, the, cop, the coxswain has this really sweet gig because they don't do any physical work at all. I like to think that'd be a good spot for me. But instead of rowing, their their entire job is to keep the crew synchronized in one direction for the race. And when you think about it, this is a crazy concept because that means the director of the team and the brains of the ship is facing the wrong direction. They say this is like pushing a shopping cart backwards blindfolded in an ice skating rink. And here's the fascinating part. Um, The way that the coxswain keeps the boat in a vector direction is to line up their vessel with the waypoints behind them. They literally steer by looking at the buoys in the distance, backwards. Now keep that picture in mind. This is the image of prayer in our lesson this morning. The church begins on their knees, not by begging God to remove this perilous threat, 
or, or by complaining that they faced this persecution or by cowering to the Sanhedrin with this fear that what would come of Peter and John, they start by praying backwards. Look at this in verse 24. Sovereign Lord, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything that is in them. They begin with praising God not only for who he is, but for what he's done long before they ever even existed. There's this swell of worship to the one whose very breath made life itself. And then as they're praying backwards, they begin speaking God's word. We might not have picked this up, but they're actually quoting from Psalm 2, 1 to 2. Look at this in Acts 4, 25 to 26. Why did the Gentiles rage, they said, and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. Direct quote from scripture. And in doing this, they're now reminded by the scriptures that though this terrifying development might be a surprise to them, it's nothing for God. This might be their first rodeo, but God's already experienced this in the past. In fact, the Greek word for rage here was used to describe a, a, a neighing and bucking and thrashing unbroken horse. It carries this meaning that though the people rage against God, their efforts will ultimately fail because he has the reins. And now that they've recalled the history and the promises and the character of God, now they make their requests. St. Augustine, who is probably one of the greatest contributors to the church uh, he, he loved the topic of prayer, just exhausted it. And, and one of the things that I think speaks so well to the prayer life of today's church that he said is this. He said, you must account yourself desolate in this world in prayer, however great the prosperity of your lot might be. In other words, the posture of our prayer life should begin with listening and remembering God's promises long before we begin to speak. I think one of the dangers of us speaking so fast in prayer is that we forget who it is that we're talking to. We can make up our own God, well, one that tells us everything we want to hear and leads us right in the direction that we want to go. Eugene Peterson said it like this. He said, left to ourselves, we'll pray to some God who speaks what we like hearing or to the part of God we manage to understand, but it's critical that we speak to the God who speaks to us. And the only way that we can be sure that that's done, that we can know who God is and what he's speaking to us is to pray backwards before we pray forwards, to listen for that voice by his word. There's a popular saying you've likely heard many times before, and it goes like this. Those who forget the past are bound to, uh, their own history are bound to repeat it. But in light of our scripture, I think it sounds more like this. Those who forget God's faithfulness in the past are bound to leave him behind in their future. So in this crisis, we find God's people praying together. We find them praying backwards. And finally, this morning, we find them praying boldly. Back in 2010, a group of uh, eight people, small group, began praying over one of the most violent neighborhoods in all of Sacramento, California. It was known as Detroit Boulevard. And Detroit Boulevard was famous for its crime. You name it, it was a daily occurrence. The drug game had taken a foothold. Gang violence was rampant. Prostitution was commonplace. So these eight followers of Christ show up from this local church and they began praying from house to house. That's it. Their prayers report to the point. They said they asked God to show them how to join them in restoring what was broken in the neighborhood. They devoted themselves to it. First, they got a lot of pushback and even a little bit of harassment. 
But over time, some, some neighbors began to ask questions. And then a few others began to join in. And soon they had a strong enough gathering for a weekly prayer group. And then that led to two prayer groups, which then became a neighborhood church plant. They called it the Detroit Life Church. And now that God's people had moved into the neighborhood, they kept asking that same pivotal question of how do we bring restoration and life to this place? Finally, in 2013, according to the secular Sacramento Bee, it was the first time in a decade that the neighborhood had seen a decline in crime. And not just a decline, there was no crime. There were no homicides that year. There were no robberies, no sex crimes. There was one petty assault the entire year. And it all began with eight people praying in community for a neighborhood. How would you rate the boldness of your prayers? I don't know about you, but as I consider my own praying life, I have to confess I'm, I'm prone to the pithy ones. Lord, thanks for this food. God, watch over us tonight. Father, would you bless this day? All good prayers, doctrinally sound, biblically accurate. But here's the question of our passage, the question that I think bubbles up to the surface. Um, how is it that the disciples lift up their prayers and the ground beneath them becomes an earthquake? Did you catch that? Look at this in verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with all boldness. They're praying together. They're praying backwards on God's acts in history, and now history is literally being made right beneath their very feet. How did that happen? Throughout the scriptures, um, the shaking of a place was an immediate indication of God's presence. It was how God manifested himself such in a way that others would know his name. Psalm 104.32 says he looks on the earth and it trembles. Nahum 1.5 says the mountains quake before him and the, the hills melt away. The earth trembles at his presence. Isaiah 6.4, and the foundations and the thresholds shook and the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke. How would you measure the boldness of your prayer life? I came across an article last week from Outreach Marketing. Outreach is a Christian research and advertising firm, and they recently reported that nationwide, we've spent an estimated $500 billion collectively on ministry in the U.S. over the last 15 years. $500 billion in the last 15 years. And despite all of that cash, in the same time frame, there's been no appreciable growth in the overall impact of the church. Church attendance has actually decreased 9.5% in the last 10 years. Meanwhile, the overall U.S. population has increased 11.4%. Here's what that tells us. Um, the church is not going to find renewal by keeping up with the latest trends. That experiment has failed. People are not going to come to Christ because our building looks cool. They aren't going to come to faith because of our fancy local advertising. The church is not going to grow because of some concert on stage or creative stories in the pulpit. We've tried that for 10 years and $500 billion later, it's been a fail. And friends, here's the tough news. We now live in a post-Christian context. In the West in America, the missionaries that we used to send down south, the churches that we created are now sending missionaries back up north to remind us what we've lost. But I give you that hard news so that we can return back to the good news. 
That the only way that we're gonna continue to see new life at Spring Hill and baptisms and conversions and lives transformed is through a movement of God's presence, not only in this place, but in this valley as we rely on him in prayer. So here's our challenge this morning. What if we just prayed the same prayers as the disciples this week? For God to give us all boldness to tell others about the gospel of Christ. What if we ask God for him to stretch out his hand to heal and restore lives that have been torn apart by hardships, not only in this church, but in our town? What if we ask for this valley to be shaken so that the glory of Jesus' name might be known? What if our prayer life wasn't just about devotion as we learned last week, but about boldness and passion? They prayed together. They prayed backwards and they prayed boldly in Jesus' name. Let's join in that prayer now. Let's pray. God, we thank you for loving us in such a way that you, you don't leave us as we are, God. And Lord, we, we, we admit, we confess that there's many times where we jump into the game, we're ready to speak to you, but slow to listen. So God, we just pray, would you, would you give us that ability to be patient, to be still and to know that you are God, to wait. Would you give us the ability to pray together? God, we pray that, that this small little gesture of these, these bracelets that say pray with me would be, become something big, Lord, that people would ask us about them, that you would bring people to us through them, that we would be bold enough to pray in public or, or pray after worship or, or uh, God, let's not over-engineer this thing, that you just make us a pray in people. So God, as we, we uh, continue to soak up your word this week, Lord, would you keep this in our, our hearts and our minds, God? to be focused in constant devotion, praying boldly for you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.